every single Sunday, as Diana pointed out. Every single Sunday we pray together and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We used to pray debts and debtors. Many traditions pray trespasses rather than sins, but it all means the same thing. We are praying that God will forgive us, which scripture says God does freely, again and again. And we are praying for the ability and the will to forgive others, which does not come as naturally to us as it does to God, and that's why we need to pray it week after week. Forgiveness is hard. It's not only hard, it's complicated. And preaching about forgiveness is hard and complicated because it feels downright arrogant to tell people to forgive when my own experiences of forgiveness have been limited. I haven't had to survive the traumas that many people have had to survive. And even so, even with my limited experience, even I know forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness for the petty or not-so-petty slights we all face is hard. Forgiveness for the small to medium-sized injustices we all face is hard. Peter is probably thinking about how hard it is when he asks Jesus about forgiveness in the Matthew passage. He asks how wide our forgiveness should be. How many times must I be slighted before I say enough? Peter offers what we might consider a rather high bar for forgiveness. Should I forgive someone as many as seven times? That seems generous, right? Jesus surprises Peter by saying we should forgive each other 77 times. As Diana pointed out in some translations, 70 times 7. You don't have to have your calculators out because Diana told you that's 490 times. But getting your calculators out is exactly what Jesus does not want, as he tries to explain in the parable. A king is settling debts with his slaves, one of whom carries a massive debt. A single talent was about 130 pounds of silver and was the equivalent of 15 years of a laborer's wage. This means the man owns the king about 150,000 years of labor. In other words, he will never, ever, not in a million years, be able to pay it back. The king de decrees that the debtor and his family will be sold in order to satisfy the debt. At least he'll get a little bit of his money back that way. The debtor begs for more time, more patience, although everyone knows that he'll never come up with all that money. Instead of more time, he receives a surprise, a wholesale remission of the debt. We don't know why the king takes pity on the man, but he does. The newly released slave, however, learns nothing from the king's example of compassion. One of his fellow slaves owes him a hundred denarii, worth about a hundred days of labor, so no small debt, but tiny in comparison to his own that was just forgiven. The first servant demands full payment right now and when he doesn't get it, he ignores the pleas of the second servant and has him thrown in jail. Once the king hears of this callous reaction, he revokes his mercy, and Jesus ends with this 
ominous threat that that's what will happen to us too if we don't forgive with the same generosity that God has forgiven us. Now, I'll come back to that threat in a bit, but how on earth can that first servant, the forgiven servant, be so unforgiving? His huge debt to his master has been wiped clean, but then he immediately moves on to his ledger that he's keeping and focuses on the debt that his fellow servant owes him. It's this ledger, this keeping account of wrongs that Jesus sees looming in Peter's heart and mind when Peter asks Jesus for a number. Jesus turns Peter's question on its head by replying with a ridiculous, even impossible reply. You want to play the numbers game, says Jesus? Okay, how about this giant number? It's not that Jesus wants Peter to get a bigger ledger. It's not that he, it, it's that he wants him to stop counting altogether. And this is because forgiveness, like love, is inherently and intimately relational rather than legal and therefore cannot be counted. If Peter had asked Jesus how many times he should love his neighbor, we'd get it. We'd think, oh, Peter just doesn't understand love. Obviously, love can't be quantified or counted. But Peter asks about forgiveness, and so we miss his mistake. Why? This is part of what makes forgiveness so complicated. We tend to treat forgiveness as a rule to follow, a law to obey. If I am hurt or wronged, then I can either obey the rule and forgive, or break the rule and seek revenge or carry a grudge. But I'm not sure that that legal approach to forgiveness is helpful. Forgiveness, like love, is about relationship. When Jesus talks about love, he says, loving God and loving our neighbors are the two most important laws, right? But they aren't laws in the sense that you can force anyone to do them. You can't force people to love, and if you tried, you would not be happy with the results. Forgiveness is like that. Ultimately, it's not about regulating behavior, but rather about maintaining and nurturing our relationships. The context is important here. Jesus has just been talking about how to build and maintain the beloved community of disciples. God wants to draw us into community, into relationship. God calls us into relationship with God and each other, and we cannot be in relationship without forgiving people and being forgiven. Everybody, everybody needs forgiveness at one time or another. Now, saying it's about relationship only makes things more complicated because even in relationship, there is a place for laws and rules, a place for saying enough. Because God calls us to relationships that are just and mutual. God calls us to relationships in which we regard not only others, but also ourselves as valued people worthy of dignity and love. And so sometimes the most loving thing we can do in a relationship 
not only for ourselves, but for the other person as well, is say, enough, and stop putting up with hurtful or abusive behavior. Jesus' teachings on forgiveness could well be misused, and we know they have been. It's what happens when we take the legal approach instead of the relational approach to forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean allowing people to treat us badly. The recent high-profile cases of domestic violence in the news brought to our attention that one in four women in the United States will experience domestic violence in her lifetime. One in four. Forgiveness may or may not be part of the healing process for victims of abuse, but before there can be either healing or forgiveness, the abuse has to stop. Forgiveness is also complicated by the fact that it doesn't necessarily look the same for everybody. Some people equate forgiveness with reconciliation, and certainly reconciliation is probably not possible without forgiveness. But perhaps you can forgive without reconciling. And maybe some people can forgive in one fell swoop, while others need to forgive in bits and pieces over time. I believe that forgiveness is part of a larger healing process after people have been hurt. You can't rush healing. And as a colleague of mine says, you can't microwave grief. Often people just need to be further along in the process of healing from whatever happened to them and of grieving the loss, feeling the real sadness of the real loss before they can forgive. But depending on the situation, anger and hatred may be part of that process before they can get to forgiveness. I like Anne Lamott's definition. Forgiveness means means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. You're done. It doesn't necessarily mean that you want to have lunch with the person. If you keep hitting back, You stay trapped in the nightmare. The phrase that I use with people is, quit renting him a room in your head. He's taking up too much space in your head. Evict him. I like this because forgiveness is ultimately a decision about the past, a decision to accept both that you cannot change the past and also that the past does not have to hold you captive. Forgiveness is a decision about the past that ultimately determines the future. When you forgive, you release the past and enter into an open future. When you cannot forgive, you remain captive to that past, trapped in that nightmare, locked in a state of victimhood almost dependent on the perpetrator. Forgiveness in this sense is is freedom. It is freedom from the past, freedom for the future, the kind of freedom God wants for each of us. This means that refusing to forgive is its own punishment. And I believe that is exactly the punishment that Jesus describes at the end of the parable. Rather than inflicting some new punishment on the unforgiving servant, the king is actually only describing the condition the servant already lives in. That is, 
He's already a slave to the world of counting and calculating and reckoning everything according to the law, and therefore he'll remain a slave until he dies from the slow poison of resentment or when he can forgive others, whichever comes first. In describing how hard it is to forgive, Brene Brown writes, the combination of self-righteous anger Blame and resentment is one of my favorites. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm, drink it up. Unfortunately, I think it's toxic and eats you alive from the inside. It might go down like a milkshake, but it burns up your insides like battery acid. Life without forgiveness is its own punishment. This morning, I will not stand here and tell you it's time for you to forgive that awful thing that happened to you. Do it now. Do it today. Instead, I'll tell you a story that points to practicing forgiveness. As Anne Lamott also says, forgiving might be the hardest part of being a Christian, and we're all here in forgiveness school. A college professor named Leslie Srajek blogs that, like Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, She's stuck in this compulsive habit of keeping a little psychic notebook of offenses against Leslie Srejcik, and it gets longer and longer each day. She goes on to say that she's going through some really tough stuff, needing major forgiveness, but she's taken Lamott's advice. If we really want to learn how to forgive, perhaps we'd better start with something easier than the Gestapo. Start with an enemy light, not with someone who's ruined your life. Srejek writes, I have a woman in my office who treated me not so well for, say, five years, give or take. Technically, my job status is higher than hers, but paradoxically, and more, it's more ambiguous, because she is a civil servant and will re- either retire at 50 or be carted out on her deathbed, i.e., she will never, ever, ever get fired and she'll receive health benefits until she's 127, My point is that in terms of who has more real power, it's she. The superficial power belongs to me, but means less than nothing. Srejek continues, At the end of last year, things came to a head, and I couldn't avoid talking with her. Luckily, she has a truly wonderful and gifted supervisor who chatted with me first about the issues, and this helped me to see things I never would have realized. For example... I realized that there was a big similarity between us, despite the radical differences in our positions. She felt insecure because she wasn't a dean or a professor, and I felt insecure that I wasn't an engineer and was always one step below everyone else. So I started our conversation by saying that I often felt confused and insecure compared to all the other deans and professors who, were way more, who had way more experience than I and that I really needed her help to be successful. In her area, she was the expert, and I needed her knowledge to do a good job for our students. One of the best aspects of my office is that we all care about student welfare. When I said this to her, it was like our entire five-year relationship changed in that moment. She offered me any help that I would need, and we looked at each other with respect and admiration. And it's lasted. I forgave her the pettiness she'd spread about me throughout the office, and she forgave me the superiority game she thought I was playing with her. 
This was a small, unpleasant experience, but it turned out well. It's nothing compared to the other feelings of betrayal and hurt that have happened to me lately, Srejek qualifies, and that ultimately have made my life incredibly painful. But it's given me the invaluable glimpse that we're all just broken people with our own pain, our own fears, and our own very deep need to be loved. And my mom has said, as my mom has said to me repeatedly in the last few weeks, you never go wrong taking the high road. I believe that Jesus is telling Peter, we need to keep on practicing forgiveness, just like we need to keep on practicing loving our neighbors. Keep on going to forgiveness school, where calculators and slide rules and ledgers are not allowed. Forgiveness, like love, cannot be commanded or forced, but we can practice it, starting with an enemy light and chucking that psychic notebook of offenses out the window, and we can pray for it. We can pray for the ability to forgive those alive or dead who have hurt us, even if we have distanced ourselves from them for good reasons. And we can pray that we are able to ask for and accept the forgiveness of others, to be vulnerable enough to admit that we are not perfect. We all do things that hurt people, intentionally or unintentionally. And we can pray that we can forgive ourselves. We can forgive ourselves some of our own regrets and mistakes and hurts and even the inability to forgive others. In my experience, this is how prayer works best. Sometimes it seems as though forgiveness isn't humanly possible, but as Lamott puts it, we can avail, you can avail yourself of the Holy Spirit working in our lives who can get the plates of the earth to shift and let some fresh air and sunlight, which is what I mean by grace, into a previously very stuck, small, tight package. Forgiveness tends to be about making the picture bigger, and if it's bigger, then maybe there's a bit more fresh air in there. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.